Is God just in his response to sin? Is God just in his response to sin? Herman Bavnik, a theologian and pastor in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, argued this, that in the Bible, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. It only punishes evil, it not only punishes evil that's being done, retributive, but it also restores those who are victims of injustice, reparative. Yet it's interesting that God's reparative justice is far more prominent in Scripture than his retributive justice. All right, let me say that again. Everyone say the word retributive. Retributive. Good. And now everyone say the word reparative. Reparative. Okay, now that I have your attention, let me say that one more time, okay? Listen closely because this is a great quote. In the Bible, God's justice is both retributive, everyone say retributive, retributive, and reparative. Say reparative. And reparative. Good. It not only punishes evil doing, which is the retributive part, retribution is the word there, but it restores those who are victims of injustice. It's reparative. Yet interestingly, God's reparative justice is far more prominent in Scripture than his retributive justice. So we've been in the book of Habakkuk, and if you've read the book of Habakkuk or know anything about the book of Habakkuk, we come to a very interesting part of it this week. We've been asking the question, what does it look like to respond in difficult times in the world? What does that mean? And Habakkuk was in a moment where he was struggling. He'd complained to God because he thought God was being indifferent to the sin and the craziness that was happening in the world. And so God responded and he said, I'm not indifferent. In fact, I'm very much present and I know exactly what's going on. And in response to Habakkuk's first complaint, he says, I'm actually going to send someone who's more unrighteous than Judah, more unrighteous than the people of Israel to bring discipline to my people who are acting sinfully. And Habakkuk was like, wait a second, God, that is, he, he, he launches into the second complaint in chapter 1 where he says, God, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me that you would say, see the wrong that's being done and then use someone more evil to bring discipline to your people. And then God responds in a profound and unique way to Habakkuk's second response and he reminds or he encourages or he challenges Habakkuk with this idea that he's not only in control, but he doesn't want Habakkuk to think that in some way he's able to earn his own rightness or righteousness. We talked a lot about this last week, and he speaks into being this statement that becomes really the pinnacle statement of the book of Habakkuk, and we actually see a pinnacle statement in the New Testament that Paul used it in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and then the writer to the Hebrews also said it. And it's chapter 2, verse 4, where he compares these two kinds of ways to live. First, God says, Behold, his soul, or the unrighteous, is puffed up. He's proud. And his, who he is, it's not right within him. But then he offers this amazing truth, and he says, But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And interestingly, the rest of the book of Habakkuk, I would argue to you, is built off of this verse. That now what God does is he wants to show Habakkuk what the life of the proud looks like. 
Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. And he kind of unpacks how this person's life is puffed up and wrong, and God will bring retribution. He will bring his wrath. He will be retributive and make things right. And then what happens is, and we'll see this next week as we conclude this study in the book of Habakkuk, God unpacks and reveals what the life of faith looks like. And we see Habakkuk move from sorrow to silence to song. And we see his worship of God in the midst of this crazy and hard experience of life. But what happens is, is he's able to say, God, I trust that you will make the righteous by faith, so I'm going to live by faith, and I'm going to trust you no matter what's going on. And, and really, that's the call in this book to all of us, is to trust God, to look to him and say, God, no matter what's happening in my life, no matter the evil that's in this world, no matter the evil that's in my own heart, I'm going to trust you. So today, we're going to reflect on or dig into the life of the proud, God reveals what's going to happen to the people who are proud. God is not indifferent. His justice will prevail. Even though much of Scripture, like Babnik said, talks about the reparative aspect of God's justice, there is still this retributive aspect of it. He will punish evil. And he will punish the proud. So, welcome to a sermon on being prideful. (laughs) I think you're going to enjoy it. (laughs) But I do want to encourage us with something when it comes to talking about the justice of God against the proud. Earlier this year, we encouraged each other as a church to read this book called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland, and he talks a lot about the heart of God in this. And In order for us to understand the beauty of God's greatness, we have to understand how critical justice is to his character. We need, in fact, it's even more significant than that. It's not just that we need. God has to be wholly just. And by that I mean both holies, right? Holy, W-H, and then holy, H-O-L-Y. He has to be just, perfectly just in who he is. But, but what me, that means, and, and this is what I would encourage us with this morning, that as, as we wrestle with our pride, as we see our pride, as we see the pride of the Babylonians and what God's going to do to it, and, and we see pictures of our own pridefulness in that, that at the same time, we have to see how compassionate and merciful God is to those who are sinful. And in this, in this book, he actually argues, Dane Orland argues, that just as ferocious as God's justice is towards sin, so as ferocious is his compassion towards those who are righteous by faith. And the principle is this, that as intense as God's justice is towards pride, so is his compassion and mercy to those who understand that they are prideful, that... that, that when we, when we stand here in pridefulness and, and we don't admit our struggle there, God is, his wrath, his discipline, his, his aggression, his ferociousness towards sin is intense. And we'll see that this morning. And at the same time, we can't lose sight that for those who are followers of Jesus and have come under the cross, it doesn't mean that God is going to say, I'm going to get you. 
because God has already poured out everything that has been earned because of our pride on Jesus. And so now he wants us to see how compassionate and merciful he is to those who struggle with pride. And so there should be this encouragement deep in the midst of this topic. It's actually, it's a little complex to unpack, but but really what we're going to see here is as we see God's intense, ferocious justice, we should also grow in our understanding and experience of his intense, ferocious compassion and mercy. Because his mercy is more. His mercy is more. So we'll see this morning how God feels towards sin, but we should also see this morning how bold, strong, intense, tender, gracious, and profound God's mercy and compassion is towards his children. So maybe the picture for me is this. If Go with me here. It's a, it's a, it's a little silly, but when I like to think a little bit of a bodybuilder, of which I am not. And so, you know, like if I were to show you my guns, which I don't have, and, uh, but imagine this with me. I think for, in some ways what I want us to see is that you know, when a bodybuilder, what makes sense for them is that there is this symmetry to them. And so when you hold up one gun, and this is the wrath of God, that the compassion and mercy of God is just as strong. I think sometimes the way we understand God's wrath is like, this is the strong arm of God, and he's going to bring his wrath down upon us. And then his mercy is, you know, whatever, it's weak. But, but the picture here that we're going to find is that God's mercy and his justice are both equally strong. And so when we think about and ponder the justice of God, it should also remind us how incredibly strong and powerful his mercy is towards us. So I hope this morning that you'll enter into this with me. So what we're going to do is we're going to engage on two thoughts today. First is we're going to expose pride. We're going to look at five woes in the book of Habakkuk that God declares out loud to the prideful. And then at the end, we're going to talk about God's heart being exposed in this, is expressed. So pride exposed, God's heart expressed. And, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time in these five woes. And what I, I'm going to ask you maybe a little differently to enter into this sermon with me. You know, we, we try to think about things differently every week. But we're going to look at the significance of each of these woes. And what I want to do is I want to unpack the pride that we see in that. And then the other side of that is the opposite, perhaps, is what a life by faith would look like. So I'm going to draw some contrast in these. Like, here's what a prideful life looks like that brings God's woe in judgment. And then think about and express, here's what a life of faith would look like. And here's what I'm hoping you're going to find in this you're going to see that maybe in some of these things, you're going to be this prideful person, and some of them you're going to say, oh yeah, I think some of that's in my life. And I, I wanted to create this tension in us, where we're, where we're seeing that really some t- we have some in this and some of that, and we're, really what we need is God's mercy desperately, that we're all imperfect people, that we all, like the Babylonians, we don't just want to look at them and go, yeah, those, they they're the worst. Because when we do that, what are we doing? This is what we talked about in the book of Habakkuk. We're starting to say, we're better than them, which is exactly what pride is. And so we have to somehow, I want you to think through each one of these. So when I start, end each one, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask it each time. And I want, I want you to really try to enter into each one of these woes with me. So let's expose pride here this morning. 
So God was going to use the Babylonians to bring discipline because he knew exactly who they were. And so he declares these five woes. And here's what a woe is. A woe is a negative warning or threat of God's physical chastisement. So God, God is, one more time, here's the picture of what's happening. Israel's a mess and they need to be disciplined, so God's going to bring discipline to them because they're in this place of pride where they don't want to repent, and so God's going to bring discipline upon them. And he's going to use this evil people, the Babylonians, and Habakkuk is like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And God says, Habakkuk, Babylon is not, oh, it, they're going to get my judgment, and, and I'll show you the, why they're going to receive my judgment. I know how evil they are. And so he declares these five woes against Babylon. So let's dive into this. If you have your Bibles and you want to jump in with me, we're going to have all the scripture on the screen this morning. We'll look at these five woes that God confronts in Babylon and unpack them. So the first woe we see is he confronts the greed of Babylon. He confronts the greed of Babylon. It's the first sin, so to speak. The Babylonians, basically, they were getting rich by stealing. So their greed was being expressed, and we see this in the passage here, by, by taking loans or by plundering from others, by taking advantage of them when they were down and out. And so in chapter 2, verse 6, the second part of verse 6, God declares this woe. Woe to him, woe to the Babylonians, who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. So you can hear what God's saying there. He's unpacking this idea that they were basically stealing from others, that their pride was making them say, it doesn't really matter how other people feel. I'm just going to take from them. I'm just going to take from them. And how is God going to make it right? Well, you see it there in verses 7 and 8. He's going to give them a taste of their own medicine. The oppressor will become the oppressed. Creditors will rise up and Babylon will have to pay for what they did. And so the question we need to ask sometimes is, are we greedy? (laughs) Are we greedy? Because here's how the life of faith is different. Remember, we're going to draw these contrasts in each one of these. So the key thing to what God's exposing here in the Babylonians is that their pride leads them to an insatiable appetite. They can't stop themselves from taking from others. In essence, that's really what greed is. They need more and more. Think about your own life for a second, if you would. What do you need more and more of that you can't stop? Maybe it's something with food. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's something with sex. Or perhaps in this case, like it was in the Babylonians, it expressed itself in money, in greed. We want more and more and more, and we'll do whatever it takes to get it, no matter the cost. That's what greed is. And the life of faith, the contrasting picture here, the the thing that there is no law against, to quote Galatians 5, is that what God is what we should see, the contrasting picture of a life of faith, is that a life of faith is content. So what I want you to reflect on here is, you know, if I, when I ask you, are you greedy, we all say the answer to that is no. Because there's always someone who has more than I have, and there's always someone that is, you know, 
uh, in, more insatiable than I am. But here's the problem. Here's what we need to contrast it with is, are you content? Are you content? Because a life of faith is content. There's this perspective that all that we need, we have in God, our Father. And so we don't need to cheat or steal to be satisfied. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from chapter 2, verse 4, that the perfect righteousness that God gives us. There's a parable that Jesus told where he talks about this servant who had this massive debt forgiven. And then when he has this massive debt forgiven, what happens is then he goes out and he, he goes to a friend of his who had this super insignificant debt, like pennies, and he demands that he repay his debt. And it's this picture of, it doesn't really make any sense. Who would have this massive debt forgiven? Who would be given perfect righteousness and then go out and steal and take from others? They don't need to do that because they should be content in what God has given them. And if we live in the righteousness that we have received, it will do what? It will keep us from greed. And so the point here is that the Babylonians were living selfless, selfish lives that were causing them to look on others to meet their needs, their insatiable needs. Whereas a life of faith is someone who would look into God and have faith in him and trust that he's given them all that they need. And so the question to all of us this morning is, will you trust that God will do that? Do you trust him? Do you trust God enough to say, God, you will give me all I need, and in that then I can live a life that is free of pride and free of greed and free of an insatiable appetite, appetite, whatever that may be. Then God declares a second woe. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. And what is the sin here? Well, the Babylonians, you see there's this definite progression that's happening in these woes. You see here that not only were they greedy, but they were actually getting rich and then hoarding it for themselves. They were building this empire and gaining wealth to protect themselves from others. Verse 9, it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Do you know who he's talking about right there? People who live in the suburbs. That's what he's talking about right there. Right? He's saying... Woe to you who, who steal from others, right? That's where it started with this, that there's this greed. And, and then he says, who try to build this place, like you're trying to protect yourself from everyone else in the world, that you're trying to, you don't want anyone else, you're hoarding it, is basically the picture here of what's happening. So how is God going to make that right? Well, in verses 10 and 11, he says he's going to bring humiliation to the proud, that their house was built on plunder, violence, and exploitation, And God's going to bring it crashing down. So the second woe is this, he's fronting confronting economic oppression. It's not just that we're, we're greedy, it's that we hoard it. Pride expresses itself in greed and pride expresses itself in in being so worried about our finances that we just hoard it for ourselves. Wonder if that describes you this morning. Wonder if that describes me. But here's the life of faith. Here's where the life of faith is different. So here, listen closely to this. I, I think that 
Secular individualism says that your money belongs to you. And socialism says that your money belongs to the state. But the Bible says your money belongs to God. So so that when we come to this place of saying, you know what, I'm going to trust God for my righteousness, there are these things that happen to us in the middle of that. And when we trust God for our righteousness, it means this. It means that everything is his. So that that includes my money. And, And what happens then is God wants to totally transform how we understand our money and how we live. And he's saying, I... I want you to know what, what all of this, everything that you have is mine. And he entrusts now us all that is his. He entrusts us with money to use it for his glory and his fame. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, Jesus calls us to be wise, wise stewards of our wealth. A steward was the manager of an estate under its owner making him both a servant and a master. So hear that again. What, what Jesus is talking about in this, in, what, as he's unpacking, like, how do we handle wealth? He tells this parable about someone who's a master and a servant. So, and, then, and he's talking specifically about finances. And so our wealth belongs to us, but yet it doesn't belong to us. And so if God is all that we need because of the righteousness that he gives us, it then allows us to be stewards of the things that aren't even ours that we just have for, for his purposes. It gives us a place where we, we can live in the freedom to be generous stewards of the money that he has entrusted us versus the proud who hoard and keep it for themselves. Only God, who can give us perfect righteousness, can free us from selfishness. So my question to you, church, this morning is, will you trust him to do that? The third woe, chapter chapter 2, verse 12, confronting slave labor. So what's the sin here that God's calling out in the Babylonians? Well, they were building their cities on blood and injustice. They were treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they didn't produce. So again, you can start to see the progression of the evil here in the Babylonians. The proud, their their lifestyle is greedy, which then turns them to self-exaltation. I'm better than everyone else, so I'm just going to keep this for myself. So I'm going to cut others off in the midst of that. And then because of that, because of this self-exaltation, not only will I cut others off, but then I'm going to, to violate others for my own gain. Look at chapter 2, verse 12, the woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. How is God going to make it right? Well, in 13 and 14, he says, he's going to bring fire upon the Babylonians. What you have destroyed to build, the next conqueror will come and destroy it. That in essence, what what he's saying is, he's saying, I see the injustice of the Babylonians. I see their pride that... So you have these prideful people who are not just greedy, who are not just hoarding it for themselves, but they're actually violating others in order to exalt themselves. 
It's an interesting thing to think about and, and ponder, like how we can use others for our own gain. Wonder what that might look like in our lives. Well, how is a life of faith different? Well, faith requires us to long for every person to be treated according to the same standards, respect, and respect regardless of their class, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their gender, or of any social category. You see, pride allows us to to use others. We think we're better than other people, so we can use them for our own personal gain, which is what the Babylonians were doing. While faith, what it does is, it puts us all on the same playing field. I, I can't in and of myself make myself righteous. So in there, therefore, I can't show favoritism to others. And not only that, but... When I see favoritism, it bothers me. It makes me upset. There's a righteous anger that comes from me because the way God designed us all is that there should be some level of equality. Paul is very clear on this. Galatians chapter 3, that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male nor female. And, and, And so if we live in this life of pride, if we struggle with pride, we're going to see it expressed in favoritism. We're going to see it expressed where we feel like we're better than others and a life of faith is actually going to have a hunger and a passion and a desire for equality. See, pride allows us to be the users of others while faith allows us to view everyone as equal without favoritism and only God can free us. How? Because he can give us a righteousness that's not of our own. And when he gives us that righteousness that's not of our own, what does it do? It allows us to pursue the things that he cares about, the equality he cares about. So I'd ask you this morning, will you trust him? Would you trust God to give you that righteousness? To set you free from using others? The fourth woe. Then God confronts irresponsible leaders. Chapter 2, verse 15. What is the sin here? Well, the leaders were abusing alcohol. They were leading other people into sin and taking advantage of them. It kind of gets, it's getting darker and darker here. Basically, the leader was, was conquering, you know, the Babylonians were coming in and they would conquer this place. And then what they would do is they would degrade and humiliate those whom they had conquered in order to rob them of their self respect and to destroy their will to resist. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. What an intense picture that God's painting here. That the prideful, not only are they greedy, not only do they hoard, not only do they use other people? But then he's really stepping up and saying, I see how the prideful abuse other people. I think sometimes, and if I can maybe just add a whole new thought to this sermon just for a second, I think sometimes what happens in messages like this is 
you know, we kind of get to this point where we're like, yeah, I don't know that I see pride that way in my life. And, and there's something that I would like to turn a little bit on this one. And I, I would like to ask you, like, have you been the one who's impact, been impacted by other people's pride? That, that in this moment, I think for some of us, we can go, you know, I've been in the place where I felt violated and abused and hurt. Not, not just, I don't mean just hurt like, uh, you know, somebody hurt my feelings. I, I'm talking about the abusiveness of what God is calling out here in this passage, that the Babylonians, they were causing people to get drunk so that they could make them naked, and that in that they would take away all of their self-respect. And I know that there are some of us in here who have felt the ramifications of the prideful in our lives. God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to make it right. Verses 16 and 17, he says, As you, Babylon, have compelled others to drink from the poisoned cup, so I in turn will compel you to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Now, I would ask here, again, to just keep the pattern we're doing, right? We see this pattern of pride. We see how the life of pride is expressed. And then I'm trying to contrast it here with the life of faith. So how is the life of faith supposed to be different? Well, we know we're living in, you know, the righteous shall live by faith. How do we know that that's a picture of who we are? Well, the life of faith is an advocate for the poor and the marginalized, The life of faith cares for people in the world who have been used and abused. The life of faith is someone who, because they've been made righteous by faith, pays close attention to the poor and the weak. Seeking to understand the causes of their condition and spending significant time and energy to change their life situation. So, I'm hoping you're you're feeling a little bit of what I'm trying to do here, right? Like, I think on one hand, like, we're building this, right? Okay, well, yeah, I'm sure there's greed in my life. And yes, I hoard things. I know that I do. I have an insatiable appetite. I know that I hoard things. I think I do take advantage of others. And then we get to this place where we're like, I, well, I don't, it's hard maybe to think about how I might abuse somebody, but what I, what I want you to see is in this picture of it's not just that we're content. It's not just that we're stewards and generous. It's not just that we seek equality in others. But there's this powerful picture here of us being a people because we've been given a righteousness that is not of our own. That we then care deeply about those who have been abused. That we care deeply about those who have been used. I mean, we could talk much about this, but in the New Testament, this is why so much we see Jesus calling out the church to be people who care for the poor and the marginalized and disenfranchised. This is why so much we see the early church, what was the pattern and passion of their heart? It was to care for those who were poor and marginalized and disenfranchised. Why? Because they, they had been received this righteousness that was not of themselves, and, and what did it do? It it. It wasn't just that it set them free from pride, but then it also did not allow them to be indifferent towards those things. 
that there should be something that's really transforming us, that our faith should lead us to, to, to have this passion and care for the broken and the hurting in our world. Proverbs 29, it says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Only God can help us see and care about the abused and the victimized in our world. And what we need is to come to be and trust that he will give a righteousness to us that is not of our own, a righteousness that we could never imagine or dream of or think, a righteousness that says, you're my child, you have everything you need, that you're cared about, that you're holy, that you're blessed. And so I'd ask you this morning, will you trust God? Will you trust him to do that? Last one, fifth woe. He then confronts idolatry. What is the sin here? Well, when a person is greedy and uses what they've gained for self-exaltation and then abuses others for personal gain and then abuses others for personal pleasure, what do they end up abusing above all things? Well, they've dethroned God. They've set themselves to worship somehow at an idol, either of something else or themselves is, in fact, the essence of pride. Chapter 2, verse 19, God declares the woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. And what is God going to do to the idolatrous? Well, the Babylonians would find that in their hour of need, their idols would be silent and have no help for them, no protection for them, because there is only one God on the throne and one God who's in the temple. And we see this picture here that faith would provide something very different, right? So what we've seen in this building pattern of pride amongst the Babylonians and the woes that God was going to pour out on them for their pride is that really there are three ways to live. You can live in control of all of your stuff, where you're the one calling the shots. You can live out of control, where your appetites and other people call the shots in your life. Or you can live the life of faith where you live under control. Under the control of the one and only King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of the universe, who will give and graciously offer to you in his mercy, his strong mercy, righteousness, which that righteousness is so profound and so beautiful and so powerful and can actually completely transform us. So I'd ask you this morning, are you in control, out of control, or are you living a life of faith under control? Control of the one who created you. What do we learn about the path of pride this morning? We learn this. Pride, in the religious sense, is an arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent and reliant on our own resources. 
God created this amazing world for us to enjoy and more importantly to enjoy him. And he invites us to dance in the garden of what he's created. And, and, and when, we, when we reject God's authority in our lives, that's pride saying, God, let me be God. Because I know what's best for me, so I'm going to pursue money to make me happy. And I'm going to hoard it and keep it from others. And not only am I going to hoard it, I'm going to use it to... to against others, and, and then it's going to build to this place of victimizing others, and then it leads to basically in all of its essence, idolatry. And God is saying to all of us who struggle with those things or are indifferent to those things, he's saying, come trust me, because the righteousness I will give you will, will lead you to this place where you will be content, where you will be in a place where you can Steward your finances and be generous towards others. Will you care about the equality of people in this world? Where your hunger and thirst for the righteousness of those who have been hurt and broken. And most importantly, where you'll stand in this place and be able to look at God and say, there is no one like him in all this place. That there's only one God worth worshiping, one God worth turning to, one God worth raising my arms to. And that's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God himself. And what's amazing about what happens here is that as Habakkuk heard God declare these woes to the prideful, you see him at one of the most powerful points in this section of Scripture that the remedy for being prideful and harmed by the proud is he sees God's heart and it leads him to worship. And so lastly, we turn now to how God's heart is expressed here, and it's in the very last verse of this passage. And God says, but let the Lord, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. And my friends, wherever you are this morning, whether you're struggling with pride, which we all are, whether you're struggling with indifference, which we all are, where we long to be righteous through faith, not in and of ourselves, and, and I hope and would argue that many of us do want that. What we need to see is what Habakkuk saw here at the end, is we need to see God on his throne and in his holy temple. And to, to end this moment of silence before him. The, the dramatic meaning of all this is simply that God has not abandoned his creation. He still sits upon the throne of authority and power. He is the almighty God. And the indecent and scandalous behavior of the prideful, the rebellious, wicked men and women in this world, such as that of Babylon, it will rage from time to time. And it will rage in our hearts from time to time. But only, only under the permissive will of him who is all in all and above all, only because God is the true and righteous judge. He will not be indifferent. He will bring retribution. But why? He wants to then in the same way to be reparative, to restore, to make things right, to shower his mercy upon those who think pride will give them what they want. He, he desperately wants us to see how much he cares for those who are hurting and struggling. And those who trust in the true God and strive to humbly do his will, we can rest in the serene assurance that our reward with God is safe. 
We can trust that God will be retributive and reparative. And this is what happened to Habakkuk. And because of that, he bursts into song, which is what we'll talk about next week. But I would end with this to you this morning. We, even though Habakkuk was able to sing this beautiful song, we have an even greater reason to sing. Because God looked upon his creation and the disease of sin, and in his compassion, it stirred him in a way that he couldn't be still. He couldn't be indifferent. He had to create a way for the disease of sin to be remedied. One sentence that I would draw out of that gentle and lowly book I mentioned at the beginning that I think can really help us here is this, is that the more corrupt we are, the less painful evil is. So maybe you've heard about the frog in the frying pan, right? The, that the, the, quick, the slower the heat turns up, the less we realize how hot it is. And, and so the point here, Dane Ortland said this, that the more corrupt we are, the less painful evil is. So if you think about this, this path, the path of pride, right? I mean, you can see how greed leads to hoarding, which leads to taking advantage of people, leads to abusing people, and just leads to worshiping ourselves. And somewhere along this line, we just kind of lose sight of the evil. It's like not that bad. But the more pure we are, the more painful evil is. So one more time, the, le- the more corrupt we are, the less painful it is. The more pure we are, the more painful evil is. So think about a glass of water. If you have dirty water and add more dirty water to it, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't make that much big of a difference to us. But if you have pure water and you drop a tiny bit of dirty water into it, it completely changes it. And God is perfectly pure. And evil in this life, the disease of sin, pains him more than we can imagine. Think about one more illustration here. You know, I've been in hospital rooms with parents who were watching their kids die of cancer, and their hatred of that cancer is inexpressible. And if they could do something about it, they would. Well, God looks upon his creation, and he sees us in this predicament of evil that he wants to desperately set us free from, and he's so pure that it actually, what happens to him is it pains him even more to see us in our pride. And so what does God do? He does the only thing that could be done to fix the problem. He breaks into our world for us, for the greedy, for the self-exalting, for the prideful, for the pleasure seekers, for the idolaters, because he knew there was something better for you and me, and he came into this world for those who had been hurt by the prideful and the abusers and the selfish and the pleasure-seeking and the idolaters. And what he says is he then takes all of the sins that we had committed and all of the sins that we'd be committed against us, and he goes to the cross for us to say, my righteousness is so complete and so beautiful and so profound. It's, it's, those words aren't even enough to express what we gain on the cross through Jesus Christ, that he takes every sin we've ever committed and every sin ever committed against us, and he says, my righteousness is, is so beautiful that it will bring freedom into your lives, and I ask you today, will you trust him that he can do that? 
Will you you spend time seeing that God is truly on the throne like Habakkuk saw and be silent before him and let him say to you, because of Jesus, you can sing. Because you've been given something that no one else in this world, nothing else in this world can possibly give you. The cross is the only thing big, big enough to handle your pride and my pride and the sins that have been committed against us. And when we put our faith in the cross, God clothes us with righteousness. He gives you and me everything our hearts could ever desire. And in that, his great love for you and the invitation to us all is to stop living in control and stop living out of control and then to just live under his control. The King of Kings and be his child. And so my question to you this morning, church, is as you see this crazy picture of God's justice towards the prideful, will you come in humility and bow your knee before the cross and say, that's what I bring? And let God say to you, I've paid for that sin already. Trust in what I've done in Jesus on the cross and I will make you righteous. And so that's my question to you this morning, church. Will you trust him? Let's pray. God, it's a heavy, heavy sermon for sure. It's a lot to think about. (laughs) And uh, so I just simply would pray, Father, that you would, in this moment, expose our pride, expose our hurts, and help us trust that the work of the cross is enough to set us free from all of that. And may we today experience the righteousness that could only come through Jesus. And may we have our eyes opened and be resurrected because of the righteousness we have in Christ. Help us taste that this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.